We turn together today to Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, as we continue in our series in the book of Matthew, in particular in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear now the word of God. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. October 31st, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther began a protest that exploded into a worldwide movement. Stephen Nichols writes, Luther was a monk. He struggled for years with the church requiring indulgences to try to get people out of purgatory and doing so in a way that's contrary to the word of God. This sickened him. He is reminded as he is writing these theses of the treasure of the gospel that Christ paid for our sins, past, present, and future, not our works and not any indulgences. But why that date? Why October 31st? Well, the next day, November 1st, was All Saints Day. And there was a massive amount of relics on display in Wittenberg, Germany, Luther's home city. And people would come from all over and they'd look at these relics, they'd genuflect to try to get years taken off of purgatory. He was vexed. He wrote the 95 Theses to try to spark a debate in the church to try to ask the question, where is the gospel here? Let's return to the word of God here. One of the theses was this. The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Reformation was about two things, as R.C. Sproul said. The return of the church to the authority of the word of God in all of life. And a recovery of the gospel that it is by the perfect life and sacrificial death of Christ, that evil sinners like us can stand before a holy God. Those issues were important back then, loved ones. They were what Jesus was dealing with as well in some ways with the Pharisees in Matthew 7. And because of the perennial authority of the word of God, they matter for us today. Today we look at two different approaches to life. The kingdom of self and foolishness, the wide road, and the kingdom of wisdom and grace in Jesus, the narrow road, in similar ways that is not entirely unconnected to what was going on 500 years ago. First, what's going on with the wide gate that Jesus talks about? Have you ever been in a plane? You're circling an airport and you're not able to land. And maybe you have to go back to where you came from for a while. 
Well, as Kevin DeYoung says, Jesus doesn't preach a sermon like that. Maybe you've heard a sermon. You think, land the plane, brother. Finish it. You've got to end it sometime. Maybe you're thinking of me in that. Well, Jesus is bringing us to a conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount here. And he's wanting us to reflect on important decisions. Yes, we need to decide, will we follow Jesus? Only because God has first chosen us, do we then come to Christ? But we can't just stand there kind of limping between two opinions. So Jesus is about to tell us there's two different trees and two different ways to call on Jesus. There's two types of teachers. There's two builders. There's two ways of life. That's coming at the end of this chapter as you look there. But first, he says, I want you to know that there are two gates and two roads and two crowds. On the broad road, there's a lot of people. On the narrow road, there's very few. And there's two destinies where these roads are leading. So picture this wide gate. Kevin DeYoung reminds us in our day. It would be like a huge neon sign. Think of something that's so enormously big and attractive, it doesn't require a lot of work or sacrifice, that draws you in. It allows you to be who you are. It's the Billy Joel way of life. I don't care anymore what you say. It's my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. The days of judges. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Permissiveness. Anything goes. Broad-minded. Self-expression. No restrictions. Jesus says, that's the gate that's wide. And not surprisingly, there's a lot of people there. It's popular. The majority of people in history take this broad road. Even many who initially seem to respond positively to the gospel. On that road, you can take whatever you want with you. There's no limit. Kingdom of self. Self-satisfaction. Self-righteousness. It's fun. It's attractive. This broad road is seen in false teaching and immoral living. Those are the two big categories. False teaching of the kind that Jesus was addressing in Matthew 7 of the Pharisees. False teaching of the health and wealth gospel. If you have enough faith, then you'll be healed, and then you'll be wealthy, and you've got to have more faith, and then everything goes well. No suffering. Live your best life now. It's also seen pastorally in a selfish, individualistic religion. What do I mean by that? Here's what one man says. I'll have God on my own terms. I don't need church. I don't really need to go to church. I don't need to join a church. I don't need to serve in a church. I decide the terms of my relationship with God. It's easy. No sacrifice. No conflict with people. No need to reconcile and see the gospel do its work. 
Bunyan talked about this. Do you remember Pilgrim's Progress, kids? On the road to the celestial city, Pilgrim, at one point, has a friend join him, but he wasn't a real friend. His name was Pliable. Pliable wanted what Christianity offered. He wanted the good things, eternal life, but he didn't want to deny himself. He didn't want to repent, and he had never really read the Bible himself. He didn't think he had a problem with sin. He didn't realize his true nature. Easy believism. Showing an interest in Christianity for a season, but then dismissing it when things get hard. The broad road is the way of the culture. The world around you says, this is normal. This is what we approve of. When you're on Twitter, when you're interacting with friends at work or at college or in your neighborhood. This is what they're going to say is the right road. Pluralism. Imagine a hallway with a thousand doors. Behind each door is a religion. On the door is the name of the religion. Their system of thought of who they think God is. You've got a door of Islam and Judaism. Buddhism and Mormonism, Scientology and Universalism. There's a thousand options. What do you choose? What will it take to get to heaven? Most people say it doesn't matter. Choose whatever religion you want, whatever door you open, and you'll get to the same place as long as you try hard, as long as you're a good person. Most people don't think a lot about an afterlife, if they think there is one. But they do think they're confident that they'll go there if there is one. They're more concerned with paying bills and saving up money and their kids, and they're not really thinking about what happens when they die. So whatever door they end up going into, we'll get there, and maybe it's nothing. Maybe it ends in absolute nothingness at all. Just do what's in your heart, and try your best. Bunyan talked about this in Pilgrim's Progress. As Christian's on his journey, remember he sees two men tumble over the wall. They are formalists in hypocrisy. They challenge Christian, who said, you can't go over the wall, you've got to go through the narrow gate. They say, well, if we get in, why does it matter how we get in? You take the gate, we take the wall doesn't matter. How dare you say Jesus is the only way? There's so many different ways. The implicit idea of the broad road is that it imposes no boundaries on what we think. One philosopher says the truth is what our peers let us get away with. So there's ideas that one community thinks are true and If that works for you and your friends, that's great. And if another set of ideas works for them and their friends, that's good too. D.A. Carson has spoken to these things so well. He wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance, saying there's a genuine intolerance of all who hold fast to their beliefs. In the name of tolerance... People are extremely intolerant of anyone who holds to the truth of Christianity. For example, 
Say you're talking to someone. This man says, we can't know anything definitively. The man who says we can't know anything seems surprisingly confident that we can't know anything. Carson wrote that in 2012. We're not living in 2012. Just a few weeks ago, he said, if he wrote this in 2022, he says, the culture still pushes tolerance, but there's more subjectivity, meaning tolerance for the things I want you to be tolerant about, but the other things I want you to be intolerant about, you need to be intolerant about, or you're at fault. You think that doesn't make sense. That's his point. We live in, in an intellectually incoherent time. Confusion. Here's an example of what this looks like. One man says, people used to be very easygoing about the foods they ate and very particular about sex and sexuality. Now, they're very easygoing about sexuality and very particular about the foods you eat. He's noticing the cultural tides and shifting. You're on Twitter. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. There's a lot of moral absolutists telling you not just that anything goes, but that what you believe as a Christian is bigoted or worse. The broad road. It's popular. But it doesn't go on forever. People on this road think... It will never end. But the road ends, how? In destruction, Proverbs 16, 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end leads to destruction. Kevin DeYoung is right when he says, in a way, every path does lead to God. Whoa. Whoa. Only one path, however, leads to favor with God. Every path will lead you to meet God one day. That's true. Only one path leads you to life forevermore with the triune God. Lots of other paths lead you to eternity in the presence of the wrath of God. This is God's word. The subject of hell, to many, sounds so medieval, way out of date. But Jesus believed in it. Satan doesn't want you to believe in it. It's real and it's painful. And there are people that we once knew who are in the presence of the judgment of God right now. Hell is not a place to have fun and party with your friends. It's pain and despair, fiery darkness, burning without light, terror, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and a lake of fire, and anguish and affliction. After death, a great chasm is fixed between heaven and hell. You cannot cross over from one side to the other. There's no working your way out of it. There's no chance of repentance. There's no purgatory. There's no mercy. It's not like you can switch your major. In college, you kind of change paths. No, it's fixed. And the pain from the lake of fire will never end. There's no annihilation. The smoke goes up forever. There's no repentance. It's a place of sin. 
It's filled with people who in their minds still think they are number one. Let him who is unjust be unjust still. Beloved, we will spend eternity in the condition in which we die. If we die in Christ, we will spend eternity with him. If we die outside of Christ, eternity is spent in the presence of the wrath and judgment of God. The decision that we have made once we die about Jesus is irrevocable. Which means there's urgency now for preaching the gospel, for witnessing and evangelism, for praying for our children who are not walking with the Lord, our loved ones who have turned away from the Lord, our neighbor who has never heard of the Lord, to tell them of the good news of the second gate, secondly, the narrow gate. Picture a short door, kids. The other door was huge, neon signs, welcome to Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Picture a little door that's kind of rusty, that you have to duck to get into, that's unappealing and unattractive. It's narrow. Jesus Christ is the narrow door. We enter the kingdom of heaven through the narrow gate by trusting in Christ, by faith, by turning from sin and repentance. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, nobody comes to the Father but through me. How did Christ come to the world? He wasn't born in a palace, but in a manger. With shepherds visiting him that night, giving glory to God in the highest. He lived a life of a place where he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He died a cursed death on a cross, like a criminal, even though he's the righteous son of God. He's buried in the tomb of another man. But he rises from the dead. That's what makes Jesus different than anyone else. He's alive. And he sends out 11 ragtag disciples to preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Many say, well, I want to find God in my way. There must be more than one door. How foolish to refuse to enter the door that God has and to say to God, give me more doors into your house when he has provided his only son. Think about it as a soccer game, kids. If you kick the ball out of bounds and say, I scored, the referee is not going to count that as a goal. If you're flying a plane and say, I'm just trying to land somewhere in the Twin Cities, I don't know where, I'm just trying to land. That's not going to work. If you're doing surgery and you dig in and you think, I just got to find something to bring out of here. You're not going to go to that guy. Any religion will do? No. Jesus' words sound arrogant to people who miss the point of the gospel. If Christianity were about self-improvement, then we would have no right to say Jesus is the only way. If Jesus was just a moral teacher telling us to be better or just an experience or an idea, then that would be absolutely arrogant. 
But Jesus is the God-man. He's the center of the scriptures. And the Bible says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. It's a precious name. He's a gracious Savior. He says, I'm the door. You can't come in another way. How could there be another way? God became man to save us. Whoever enters by me will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. He'll rest in the finished work of Jesus. She'll know that she's loved by God. How could there be another way? Jesus is the truth. He's the life. He's the way to the Father. He's the manifestation of the revelation of the Father. He's the only mediator between God and sinful man. There's one narrow door to salvation open to all who repent and believe. What did he do? Why is he not only unique in his person, but also his work? The gospel says that Jesus is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. And there's a righteousness we need to be accepted by a holy God. Martin Luther wrestled with that. He realized, I'm not righteous. God is holy. He's perfect, and I'm not. His standard is unachievable. I'm a rebel. I deserve the judgment of God. Luther tried to attain the righteousness of God, remember? He beat himself up. Maybe you've tried to do that. If I'm hard enough on myself, maybe that will make God love me. No. If I'm prideful enough and achieve enough, maybe that will do it. No. If I look at the relics, that's what Luther thought. Literally, there, was, there would be pieces of straw from Jesus' manger. It's not real, but that's what they would have, saying, this is a straw. Or this is a piece of the burning bush from Exodus. Or come and look at a piece of Jesus' beard. This was going on in these days in the 1500s. No, no matter what he did, how hard he tried, Luther said, the righteousness of God condemned me. I began to hate it. I began to hate this God. Maybe that's where you are today. Until, Luther said, I saw that the righteousness God demands in his law, he provides in his son. Romans 1 was the text, 16 and 17. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Imagine a dialogue between the law and a sinful man. Machen, one of the teachers of the church, said this. Man, says the law of God, have you obeyed my commands? That's the law speaking. No, says the sinner, I've transgressed them in word, thought, and deed. Well then, sinner, says the law, have you paid the penalty that I pronounced on those who disobeyed? Have you died in the sense that I meant when I said, the soul that sins should die? Yes, said the sinner. I've died. That penalty that you pronounced upon my sin has been paid. What do you mean, says the law? By saying you have died, you don't look as if you're dead. You look as though you're very much alive. Yes, said the sinner, I've died. 
I died there on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. For Jesus died there as my representative, as my substitute. I died there as far as the penalty of the law was concerned. You say Christ is your representative and substitute, says the law? Then I have no further claim of penalty against you. The curse that I pronounced against your sin has been fulfilled. My threatenings are very terrible, but I have nothing to say against those for whom Christ has died. God has justified the ungodly. Praise be to him. What does life look like for you on this narrow road? Jesus says, Matthew 7, 14, it's hard. Sacrifice, suffering, persecution. People will say that's not normal. It's not popular. When you're confessing Christ as your Savior and Lord, you may find yourself a tiny minority among friends, at school, in the neighborhood, at college, at work, in the world of academia. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by genuine repentance. The narrow gate is about entering eternal life. We can't take the baggage with us. We don't grab a U-Haul and put everything in and say, it's all coming. Not of our old life. The tiny gate is a metaphor for the Beatitudes. Few people are willing to confess, I'm a sinner. Few people are willing to be humbled, and only God's grace can do it by the Spirit. Death to ego, death to pride, it's narrow. Deny yourself, Jesus says. Take up your cross. Follow me. It's a hard life, but it's a life of prayer and dependence upon God. We are beggars in search of bread. Christ is that bread. And Jesus says, like we saw last week, persist in asking and seeking and knocking. Keep short accounts with God. Loved ones, one of the burdens of the elders and I is that we would continue to grow as a people of prayer together. We need to keep short accounts with God and with each other. The closer we get to God, the closer we'll be to each other. And the more we'll see each other in the light of his grace. Only the person who sees he's a beggar before God, that he's an heir of the grace of God, will be set free from self-centeredness. To put others first. To do to them what we would appreciate receiving from them. Do you see what Jesus says in verse 12? Life on the narrow road is the golden rule. Hmm. This has been twisted. Kant, Confucius, Hillel, Buddhism, all sorts of people have taught something of this. Just get along. Have a more peaceful life. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, therefore... As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a heavenly, Christ-centered, covenantal ethic because of the gospel, how do you live to glorify God? 
Not just get along. The golden rule is not the gospel. It's neighbor love. But in light of the gospel, in light of all that you have in Jesus, live this way by the Spirit. Your heart's being changed. Jesus has created a new people with new hearts. Jesus says the golden rule is the law and prophets. Do you see that? Verse 12. Meaning the whole Old Testament points to Christ and his kingdom that he brings through his life, his death, his resurrection. Christian living now is how can I treat others in a Christ-centered way? We need help. We don't go and do the golden rule and say, I'm just going to try harder. God's spirit changes our hearts so that we treat people the way we want them to treat us, even if we're fairly sure they're still going to treat us in a way we don't want them to treat us. That's impossible, apart from the spirit of God. But the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, producing faith, producing repentance, producing this love. If you like being loved, love. Do you like being heard? People listening to you? Listen to them. Do you like being helped? Help and serve them. Those who are not Christians taught a different version of the golden rule. They framed it negatively. Don't do what you don't want others to do to you. Jesus says, no. I'm flipping this around. Treat them as you would wish that they treat you. You say, well, I'm going to get my heart broken. People are going to hurt me. People have hurt me. C.S. Lewis. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. Impenetrable. Irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. God, may you equip us here at Emmaus Road. Where do you stand, loved ones? What do you believe? Eventually, the narrow gate will no longer be open. The door will be shut by your death or by Jesus' return. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. There's no preaching of the gospel in hell. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus says there'll be surprises in heaven. That someone will say, what are you doing here? And they'll say to you, what are you doing here? Now, it's not presumptuous to have gospel assurance that you're going to be with the Lord one day. Assurance of salvation should be the possession of every true believer. 
So don't sit here and think all those that I think are saved are lost. All those that I think are lost are saved. Jesus doesn't say that. But he says the person who expects to be there expects and thinks they deserve salvation. That person is in danger. One of the marks of a believer is an overwhelming sense of our unworthiness, of our need for Christ, our need for grace. We enter this narrow gate personally by trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, by daily living a life of repentance, turning away from our sin, not relying on our performance. Do you know Jesus? Or as the Bible also says, does God know you? Those whom he foreknew, he loved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The two roads are not endless. The narrow road leads to life. The consummated kingdom of God. That's where the road is headed. For the Christian who has entered the narrow gate, everything is moving forward to the return of Jesus and joy forevermore and pleasures forevermore with the Lord in a new heaven and new earth. Where Gentiles come from the four corners of the world, Luke says, to join with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where there's a joyous feast, where we enjoy soul-satisfying pleasures in the presence of the triune God for all peoples. There's a completeness to God's kingdom. The door is open to all. Christianity is the most exclusive religion. You only come through faith in Christ. It is also the most inclusive religion. The door is open to all types of people. Not one group. Not one nation. There are no Christian groupies. All tribes, all tongues, all nations, all ethnicities, worldwide. The gospel goes from nation to nation, from generation to generation, from those who are old and near death to those who are just beginning their earthly pilgrimage. And this gospel not only needed to be defended in 1500, but we need a modern reformation. We need a recovery of the person and work of Christ today. We need spiritual courage today. We need an army of courageous Christians to arise. We need courageous teenagers like King Josiah and King Edward VI who for the glory of God stand on the truth of God and do not cave in to the idols of the culture but by the Spirit of God tear them down. We need courageous women, like the two Margarets, the martyrs in Scotland in the 17th century, who one man says, would rather die a watery death than dishonor Christ as the head of the church. We need courageous men, like the Oxford martyrs, Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer, who bravely endured the fire for the sake of the truth during the persecution of 1555. We need courageous pastors and elders and deacons. We need courageous preaching of the word. 
a sincere walk in godliness, reaching out to the lost. We need courageous men and women, boys and girls, who pour themselves out for the love of the brethren, who love Jesus and love each other and want to see Christ save the people he has promised to save from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right now, Christian, ask the Lord for spiritual courage. Walk in the strength of the Spirit. Pray that God would raise up a new generation, kids, you and those coming up, of courageous Christians. O church, arise and put your armor on. Amen. Let's stand and sing together those very words. The hymn, O church, arise.